welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have Professor Joseph Graves Jr. He's a professor of biological sciences in the Department of Biology at North Carolina A&T State University. He's also the first African-American to receive a PhD in evolutionary biology. And Professor Graves was elected a fellow of the Council of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in 1994. He's an associate director of the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine and has been recently added to the board of the National Center for Science Education. And his new book, Out Now, is called A Voice in the Wilderness. A pioneering biologist explains how evolution can help us solve our biggest problems. Welcome, Joseph. It's good to have you on. Uh, thank you guys for having me today. Absolutely. And so as we tend to do, we are going to start off with a passage from Joseph's book. So Joseph writes, any genetic variant reducing blood flow to the brain would potentially have a negative impact on cognitive, on cognitive function. And all genetic influences on cognitive function are dependent upon their interaction within a large number of environmental factors, e.g. nutrition, medication, chemical exposure, lifestyle practices such as smoking, drinking, or exercise, circadian rhythm, whose dysregulation has powerful consequences for mental function. Epigenomic change Changes and the individual's microbiome. So the notion that we can identify a small number of candidate genes that would capture the majority of the variation in the normal range of human intelligence is absurd. So I love that. Um, as you know, since we're kind of lay people on this argument, as I'm sure you know, a lot of us in this kind of pop culture, we keep uh, reading articles that crop up here and there about the sort of uh, the under the genetic underpinnings of IQ. So what to, what we tend to see in biology or neuroscience sometimes is people kind of reduce it to genetic factors. And obviously, we're going to get into the bell curve and what that means, the book, uh, not the actual concept. Um, and so essentially what people tend to do, and I think the kind of popular conception is, is that uh, IQ and intelligence is or are predominantly genetic. So you challenge that and you sort of more so focus on the socioeconomic status as opposed to the genetic variance underpinning intelligence. So can you tell us a little bit about that, about that and also some of the backlash that you've gotten as opposed from some of these biological determinists? Okay, so um, let me first make it clear um, that my training is in evolutionary genetics and quantitative genetics. Mm -hmm. uh, when most people think about genetics, they, they think about it in terms of the really simple, you know, uh, Punnett square type genetics, where you can take one locus and you have a dominant allele and you have a recessive allele and you cross them. And you get a three-quarter ratio showing the dominant phenotype and a one-quarter ratio showing the recessive phenotype. Now, I, I can tell you um, that even most people who graduate from the university with um, courses in genetics, that's the level of genetics that they've gotten. Wow. Um, very rarely do people take courses dealing in quantitative traits now, the reason this is unfortunate is because the vast majority of traits, particularly that have significance to evolution, are quantitative traits, not simple Mendelian traits. Mm. And the difference between quantitative traits and Mendelian traits is that um, in a quantitative trait, multiple genetic uh, loci, positions along the chromosome that encode you know, protein uh, genes, are involved in the production of that phenotype. And the more loci involved, the more difficult it is to understand how those genetic systems produce the ultimate physical trait that you're examining. Mm -hmm. Now, 
it might also surprise you that our understanding of genetics really sort of began in quantitative genetics. And that was with people breeding domestic crops, domesticated animals. They were doing this in the ancient world, but they didn't actually know the mathematical formulation behind the breeding that they were doing. Okay, mm -hmm. which brings us to this, you know, modern misconceptions about single Mendelian traits determining complex um, things like intelligence. And that's why I, you know, I say that's nonsense. What we know about the function of the brain is that about 82% of the human genome. So we have 19,000 protein coding genes, 82% mm -hmm. of them are expressed in the human brain. Wow. Now to give you a comparison, other complex organs like the heart and the lungs um, only use about 42% of your genome. So the brain is literally the most complex organ that exists on this planet. And since we don't know aliens yet, right, we could say it's the most complex organ that exists in any biological system that we know of. Mm -hmm. So the idea that, you know, changing one gene is going to be account or account for the variation we see in cognitive traits is absolutely silly. Now, mm -hmm. I am going to give a caveat there mm -hmm. because we know a great deal about single Mendelian type mutations that do drastically lower cognitive performance. So things like fragile X syndrome or Down mm -hmm. syndrome. So there, there are a number of things like that. Uh, trisomies, for example, where you have the duplication of a chromosome and it has profound effects on an individual's cognitive function. So we know all sorts of ways of lowering the function of the brain. Right. But the contribution of the genes involved in normal variation in human intelligence is, is not simple Mendelian. It's 82% of your genome. So the tool that modern biologists use to understand how complex traits determine a physical trait is called genome-wide association studies, or GWAS. Now, um, GWAS has been deployed to understand a number of complex human traits, um, and we can determine the genetic contribution to those complex traits. Uh, and some of them are very high, like for example, height. Um, when you look at you know, very large studies, 100,000 individuals across the globe, um, you can determine that the um, genetic contribution to height is essentially 80%. Hmm. And so um, let me back up a second. The term that we use to describe the genetic contribution to any trait is called heritability mm -hmm. okay, or H squared okay, is the term we use for this trait. Um, heritability can go from zero, no genetic influence whatsoever, to one, meaning everything is genetic. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about human height, which uses, you know, tens of thousands of loci in the human genome, you know, we come out at 80% heritability. So 80% of the variation in human height is determined by genes, mm -hmm. wow. only 20% by environment. Mm -hmm. However, when we deploy GWAS to understand um, cognitive performance, 
the performance of those tests has been really small. So for example, one test looked at a cohort of people of European descent. Uh, this is around 2011. Um, and you were talking about maybe several thousand people and they estimated the heritability or the genetic component of intelligence at 1%. Wow. Which wow. means 1%, you know, genes, 99% environment. That's Another um, study looked at very high IQ individuals um, through the Duke University um, Talent Identification Program, and, and their results were only slightly higher, mm -hmm. about 10%. Um, most recently, um, a study which looked at 1.2 million people of European descent came up with a uh, heritability estimate for intelligence at only around, um, sorry, let me go back, for educational attainment, which by the right. way is not intelligence. Right. Oh, Joseph, can you actually tell us why they switched it? So right, I love that. I, I'm going to tell you why they switched yeah. it, but let me give you the numbers first. Mm -hmm. Educational attainment around 11%, but of a cognitive performance at 4%. And mm -hmm. that of course explains why you know, psychometricians switched to educational attainment mm -hmm. because you get higher scores, which mm -hmm. makes their case that, well, you know, genes contribute to this educational intelligence or educational attainment at 11%, which is, you know, reasonable in the sense that that's about as much as family SES or socioeconomic status does. Mm -hmm. And so they said, well, now we found this really important relationship. But if you go back to a more direct measurement of cognitive performance, such as IQ, you only get 4%. Right. And so what this underscores is that when we use the most modern techniques deployed in the best um, study design, you know, 1.2 million people. And I'm also going to reemphasize, this was 1.2 million people of European descent. Mm -hmm. They only found 4% of the variation in cognitive performance attributable to genes, which means 96% was not. Right. So that's why I say that it's a fool's errand, particularly when you think about the way the brain works, the complexity of the interactions between genes themselves, which we call epistasis, mm -hmm. and environmental factors. When you put those in, the idea that any single genetic locus is playing a major role in determining human intelligence is absurd. And uh, let me go back to that 1.2 million um, study, you know, they found in that, and again, I, I don't have the study in front of me, but it, it's about 125 um, positions or what we call single nucleotide polymorphisms, mm -hmm. uh, places in the genome where you can get a different nucleotide base there, which could account for genetic variation. They found 125 SNPs were accounting for that 4%. Mm -hmm. Um, association. So just do the math. Okay. 125 div divided into four. Mm -hmm. Right. So that means that each one of those SNPs is giving a very small contribution to this very small amount of variation in cognitive performance. Right. Which again says that most of what we see in the real world in terms of the differences that individuals display in intelligence is probably more related 
to environmental factors than it is to genetic variation. Mm. Which, by the way, that knowing that's really enlightening because historically, right, uh, I've uh, I've seen you know that uh, scientists or not even scientists, people have used. Uh, genetic differences to justify claims about uh, like different uh, racial differences, right? Like, for example, um, uh, like, uh, I don't know, bra uh, brain size or skull cranium, size. Yeah, yeah cranium, yeah, so. let's say for African Americans, it's, it's messed up when you, when you like take into account what you just said that people used to justify these things. Yes. So yeah. going back to, to brain size, I mean, that that's a fallacy that you can date back to the 18th century. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we can't show any relationship between human brain size and, you know, what we call intelligence, which, by the way, the, the term intelligence itself is problematic. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about doing genetics, one of the most important things is being able to identify the phenotype or the physical trait in question. So if, if I tell you, you know, 80% of the variation in height is determined by genes, I have very solid footing with regard to the measurement of height. I mean, any person on the street, you can give them a tape measure and you can go out and you can measure a person from their head to their toes. Mm -hmm. There's no controversy over the meaning of this physical trait, height. Mm -hmm. However, when we get to this you know, term intelligence, people who study human cognitive function don't agree on the definitions. So there are three major definitions that are used. The first is called triarchic theory. And triarchic theory says basically that there is this thing that we call generalized intelligence. And you can break generalized intelligence down to subcomponents like, you know, the store of your um, information or the flexibility of your mind to solve new problems and so forth. And these things are statistically related and you can get a score called G, generalized intelligence, which you can measure via various forms of standardized tests. Mm -hmm. Well, not everybody in you know, the field of cognitive performance accepts that definition of intelligence, but that is the one that psychometricians have based their entire, particularly their entire racial, um, argument on is simply this one definition of intelligence, triarchic intelligence, but not the other two. So for example, another common definition of intelligence is called multiple intelligence theory, yeah. in which there are eight different categories of an individual's intelligence, which include things like body, kinesthetic, um, music, um, spiritual. Now, in, um, spiritual doesn't usually fall into into multiple intelligence, at least not in in the work that I've seen. But things like uh, emotional intelligence, you know, uh, social knowledge, and things like that. And then there's another one, uh, a third one that just has three components of intelligence, which so deal, uh, which are sort of practical and then creative, and and another one. But but my point is that no one has settled on what the correct definition of intelligence is and no one has settled on exactly how one measures these things in a reliable way so with height we know what it is we know how to measure it with intelligence we have a huge debate by people who study this area about what it actually is and an even bigger debate with regard to how to measure it 
That, of course, makes genome-wide association studies even more problematic because, you know, and by the way, I want your listeners to know that I do genome-wide association studies. I've done them with regard to lifespan. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people who they hear who have problems with, you know, genetic theories of intelligence are people who've never been in a laboratory, don't know how these methods work. They've never measured them. And they just say, oh, well, yeah, genetics of intelligence is all wrong. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm someone who's actually done these studies. And I, I can know. say that if you were to use the standards in my field, you couldn't publish any of the stuff that psychometricians have published on GWAS of intelligence. Right. And the reason why you can't publish it in my field is because we know that environmental sources are crucial in determining eventual phenotypes. This this problem, by the way, is recognized by the National Science Foundation as one of the great big ideas in life science research. Mm -hmm. It's called the genotype to phenotype pathway. So people who do this work in experimental systems where they can control one who mates with who, which is really important for deploying the tests of heritability is being able to control who mates with who. Um, and we can control the environments under which the organisms develop and live. And we can do that for multiple generations. Now, the reason that last thing is so important is because we know that in this genotype to phenotype pathway, that epigenetic factors, which are non-nucleotide based changes in the genetic code, which results from differential environmental exposures, play a huge role in gene expression. And so if you can't control the environment and you can't guarantee that your experimental subjects have undergone the same developmental environment for at least two generations before you compare them, then you you can't publish that work in my field. Mm -hmm. Now, when you look at what people who are studying psychometrics in humans, they can't do any of those things. They can't control who mates with who. Um, They can't control the environments under which their subjects live. And they certainly can't control the developmental conditions of those subjects for two years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that makes me think. uh, How difficult is it for someone in your field? Oh, yeah, pardon. Yeah, so uh, for two generations, right, to do a study like that, control who mates with who, and actually follow these subjects and actually control the environment. Is that something that um, someone in your field is like, is anyone attempting to do those sorts of experiments or well, again, you probably humans, have, humans have done those experiments for day, for, for generations. And, and that is the basis of modern agriculture. Yep. So, so, so the tools to determine, you know, changing, let's say you, you, you grow pigs yep. and you want to maximize their back fat to make bait, bacon. Well, you have to do all the things I just measured. I, mean, I just mentioned. You have to control which males mate with which females. Okay, so they're called dams and sires, right? Mm-hmm. So you control that. And then you can compare, right? The children that are produced or the offspring, because they're not human, the offspring that are produced by specific males with the females they mate. And we, we can then use that to estimate the heritability of back fat in pigs. Wow. And that's why, you know, when you look at, you know, cattle industries, they don't use all the males. 
to produce a cattle that people are going to eat. They use a subsection of those males. Okay? And the same with the females. And, and so that's because these methods of changing physical traits have been known to work. Mm-hmm. Same thing, a really good example would be thoroughbred horses. Right. Yeah. Okay? People who raise those horses have, have trait books that go back generations. And that's how they can predict that an offspring of a given male sire with a given uh, female horse is likely to display championship characteristics when they put them in on the track. We can't do that with humans. Right. Even the Nazis, okay, who controlled the state power, okay, couldn't determine who mates with who. They tried through their Liebenstrom uh, programs, right, to, to get the most um, you know fit Aryan females to have a lot of babies with the most fit Aryan males. They tried it, but they, but they couldn't do it. Mm. So without those kinds of techniques, everything you do um, is is basically indirect measurements. And so with these indirect measurements that can't account for all the things that I just mentioned, you're basically waving your hands and then then saying, oh, and a miracle happens and 11% of educational attainment is genetics. Mm. But we don't really know that precisely Mm. because in the studies in question, they don't have the kind of rigorous control that you actually need to make genetic estimates of a given physical trait. Right. And it's also very interesting how data is interpreted. So now going into the book, The Bell Curve, which was obviously super popular, it still is to some extent, was really popular in the mid-90s. So you have these two distinct distributions between uh, obviously white uh, kind of people or males and you know African-American or black males or people just in general. So you have this kind of overlap between the two. And obviously on the graph, as you show it in your book, there is a distinction between the distributions. So, But on the one hand, you have people who explain it as purely genetic. Well, they say here are these kind of uh, here are these IQs or the distinctions between them. And there's a distinction between the mean standard deviation. So Joseph, how do you explain it in the context of environment? And how do we know? Because people on the other end would argue, well, you know, we can see that it's, we can see the distribution, right? We can see this, the two distinct maps, right? But how do you sort of interpret the data and account for environment, especially in the context of the different types of environments that different types of populations tend to live in? Sure. I mean, that, that's easy. So the, the first <laughs> paper, first paper I wrote, on the bell curve was entitled figures never lie but often liars figure yeah so um i was asked by a a colleague um sociologist to examine the claims of the book now at the time again there are a lot of humanists and social scientists who were screaming oh this book is racist this book is racist this book is racist i understood that that's not an argument in other words if, if i started parroting that no one would listen to me So what I did is I actually read the book from cover to cover. I examined, you know, their methods, including their statistical methods, and showed, one, that the way they did their statistics was all wrong. Mm -hmm. And so they're making claims about the impact of intelligence on American social life that really you can't make based upon the data they had and the methods they used because they did it incorrectly. Then there's the intelligence testing itself. Okay, so in the bell curve, they showed um, the results of the armed forces qualifying test for a given year, some sometime in the 1990s, it might have been, or even the 1980s. But I don't doubt that the distribution of IQ test scores that they showed were real. They are real. It is a question of what caused them, however. Yes, right. And when you look at 
how structural racism works in the United States, it is very easy to understand how certain people, based upon their socially defined race, have greater educational opportunities because Armed Forces Qualifying Test is like the SAT, but you know, for people going in the military. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to understand how certain socially defined groups have had greater access to the things that would allow them to perform better on those tests, mm -hmm. including, you know, where you live. Okay. It has a great influence on how your brain is capable of working. Mm -hmm. Some people live in areas where they're getting lead poisoning by the water that comes out of their pipes. Some people don't. So we know, for example, in the United States, African-American children have eight times the blood lead in their bodies than European-American children do. Wow. Okay, Lead is a toxin that influence, you know, destroys you know, neural performance. We also know things about nutrition, okay, whether you are eating on a regular basis or not. So often poor kids go to school hungry. Um, how, how, do you, how do you get kids learning how to read and write and do math when they're thinking about the meals they don't get at home? Mm -hmm. Or when they have to live on the floor because in their neighborhood, gun violence is so regular that bullets routinely come through the window. So people, you know, Chris Rock made the joke that in his neighborhood, you know, they ate dinner on the floor. They slept yeah. on the floor, whatever. <laughs> because and, you know, these, these these things are real. So if you if you put the the cumulative uh, racial injustice that persons of African descent have ex experienced in the United States, I have no doubt that those kids don't do as well in those tests as people who haven't had to go through that. And then there are, there are a number of other psychological factors like imposter syndrome, um, stereotype threat. You throw all those things in there. And until we equalize the educational systems and the social, physical environments that people live in, you cannot make any genetic claim for any physical trait. So the physical trait is real. The tests are real. But you can't say that that difference is genetic. And now, to go further... The biggest problem that people who, who champion the genetic determination or differences in intelligence amongst human populations face is they have to explain how that could have evolved. Mm -hmm. Now, when people were using uh, special creationism, you didn't have to come up with an explanation. And by the way, that was the explanation for the differences in intelligence in this country up until the 20th century it was god is white god created white people smart god created all the non-white people dumb simple explanation that requires no evidence in the 20th century when we had you know the coming of evolutionary genetics now you have to explain how it is that one population ended up more intelligent than others. So it began with these ideas of multi-regional evolution, meaning that, you know, Homo sapiens evolved from Homo erectus in different portions of the world, but at different rates. And so, you know, Carlton Kuhn in the 1960s, who was an adamant racist and opponent to desegregation, 
you know, in his book on human races, well said, yeah, we can explain these intelligence differences by the fact that Africans arrived at Homo erectus late. So, so that's, that was his explanation, okay? Different rates of evolution in different portions of the world. Now, the problem with that is that that would represent the most incredible case of parallel evolution that anyone has ever seen in, in any group of organisms, right? That they all came from Homo erectus in different places, but at different rates. So it was rapidly shown that that theory was bogus. And that in fact, the human species, Homo sapiens sapiens, evolved in Africa around 300,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. okay? That means that everybody on the planet, by the way, is an African. It's only a question of when your ancestors left Africa. Some people's ancestors left earlier than others, but the amount of adaptation to these new uh, novel environments is actually tremendously small. And, mm -hmm. and, and we can see how small it is by looking at the characteristics of the human genome. Okay, 99.9% .9 of the human genome is shared amongst all people who are alive today. Mm -hmm. That means that if you choose any two people on the planet at random, 99.9% .9 of their genome is the same. Yep. Now, furthermore, if you were to take, for example, one African and one European drawn at random and two Africans drawn at random, it would be the two Africans who have a greater difference in the genome than the African and the European. Interesting. And the reason for that is because the greatest amount of genetic variability in our species resides on the African continent. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Africans and Europeans at random are closer to each other than Africans and Africans are. Wow. Now, hmm. and then you're going to try to uh, come up with a theory of racial difference of intelligence based upon such similar genomes and, and genomes, by the way, that um, are similar and different in ways that completely invalidate racial classification, you have a huge problem there. Now, but I'm going to go on because I'm sure some of your listeners are saying, well, you've got 3.3 billion nucleotides out there, Dr. Graves, and yeah, 0.999, the same, still means 300 nucleotides that are different. Mm -hmm. And, and I, com I completely agree. 300 nucleotides are enough to make every human being on the planet unique, except for identical twins, right? And so, you know, you could have polymorphic variation going on that makes uh, groups different with regard to this trade intelligence. But then you have to explain how that would happen. Mm. So um, the first set of explanations were put forward by people like J. Philippe Rushton. And he used life history evolution theory called R and K selection. And basically Rushton's argument was that our selected um, populations tend to have a higher investment in reproduction and a lower investment in somatic tissue, that is stuff that isn't reproduction. Mm -hmm. And so for Rushton, his theory was that Africans were R selected. They had smaller brains and larger gonads. And Europeans were K selected that they had bigger brains and smaller gonads, okay? And I mean, he meant by this Eurasians and East Asians. Mm -hmm. So the problem with that right away 
is if he, he's you're making the argument though you know the reason that africans um are, aren't as intelligent is because of their high reproductive capacity if you start measuring african you know populations and european populations and east asian populations for the reproductive capacity there's no correlation mm-hmm, right okay so simply no correlation so that theory falls on his face from the evidence but the worst thing about what rushton did was he applied the theory backwards mm-hmm. and i was the first person to show that that in fact what macarthur and wilson said in their original formulation of rnk selection theory was that European populations or temperate zone populations would be R selected and that tropical populations would be K selected. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason for this is because temperate zone climatic conditions require rapid growth for, you know, winter. So you have to be R selected to get through your reproductive cycles. Tropical zones have multiple growing seasons. And so you're not pushed by the chance that you're not going to be able to complete your reproduction in the tropics. Mm-hmm. So Rushton applied his RNK theory selection backwards. Mm-hmm. Now you can, uh, by the way, see the Graves Rushton debate because we were on a panel together in the 90s at the John Jay um, College of Criminal uh, Law in New York City. So if you YouTube, Graves Russian debate. You can see that panel in which I point out all this stuff to him. And soon after I published on this, Rushton stopped using RNK selection altogether because he'd been exposed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So after that, they went to winter selection theory. And winter selection theory goes like this. Okay. When people moved out of Africa and they now are experiencing this thing called winter. Winter requires greater cognitive skills to survive. So you have to figure out how to do new stuff that you didn't have to figure out when you lived in the tropics. Mm -hmm. And hence selection for greater intelligence. Now, this is the, you know, even dumber than RNK selection theory. Because uh, number one, okay, people migrated all over Africa too. There are over eight climatic zones in Africa, which all of which represent new and novel problems. For example, the rainy season, right? Rainy season is extremely difficult, just as difficult as winter is. So why is it that only your Asians had to figure out how to be smarter as they migrated around the world? Right. Mm -hmm. And Africans didn't as they migrated across Africa, by the way, which is the largest land continent by landmass on the planet, going through the largest amounts of longitude, I mean, latitude. Right. Mm -hmm. So so this is uh, basically because... We had winter. Winter had to have given us greater intelligence, right? And wouldn't Which winter have? <laughs> wouldn't winter have sort of eliminated those early humans anyway? If by the time it took them to evolve greater brain capacity, wouldn't the sort of the elements have kind of eliminated them at that point? I would say obviously no, because mm-hmm. you know the human species migrated all over the globe, mm-hmm. right? including through some of the worst winter conditions possible in the Arctic, mm-hmm. right? So. You know, making making this argument that the Arctic was the only place, or the winter was the only place that's that produced significant adaptive problems that humans had to solve is silly, mm-hmm. silly to an extreme. Now, what I argue is that before anyone left Africa, 
we had evolved the capacity to solve these kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. And so as people began to migrate around the world, they came in contact with, you know, with, with new pathogens, with new flora and fauna, with new climate conditions, and we figured it out. Okay, and because we already had that ability to figure out. Because if, for example, and here's the thing they really fall flat on, is if there had been this post-Africa selection for intelligence, we would see the signature selection signature for intelligence all over the human genome. Mm. But we don't. Even the genes that the European studies, psychometric studies, claim are associated with greater intelligence don't lie in regions of the human genome that show evidence of strong natural selection. So for your listeners, most of the genetic variation we see in modern humans around the globe comes from randomness, or what we call genetic drift. Mm-hmm. There's a strong relationship between genetic variability and distance from Africa, mm-hmm. meaning the farther people migrated, the more genetic variants they lost, so their genetic variability went down. Mm-hmm. We have specific examples of strong natural selection, and they're in things that you wouldn't be surprised about. So solar intensity related to skin complexion. That's an example of strong natural selection, which occurred, of course, over tens of thousands of years, because ancient DNA studies of an individual in Spain who lived about 8,000 years ago, northern Spain, by the way, mm-hmm. demonstrate that that individual still had dark skin. Mm-hmm. So when the first anatomically modern humans moved into Europe, they had African physical features. Mm-hmm. So it took tens of thousands of years before the European phenotypes that Europeans take for granted actually evolved. But it wasn't on intelligence because if it was, we would see those signatures of selection. We don't. Mm-hmm. We see signatures of selection for things, like I said, skin color, for um, resistance to parasites, whether they be you know, protozoans or bacteria or viruses. We see um, for changes in diet. So for starchy diet, high fat diet. Um, lactase persistence, people who domesticated cows in Africa, in the Middle East, in Northern Europe, all have lactase persistence. We see examples of altitude adaptation. So people in the Himalayas, people in the African Rift Valley, people in the Andes Plateau, all have high altitude adaptation. Some of them are the same, some of them are different. Mm -hmm. So we can and have shown these examples of strong adaptation But none of them, by the way, these are all single Mendelian traits, but not in these complex traits like intelligence and personality. There Mm -hmm. simply is no evidence of that. And so they are making genetic claims with no genetic evidence. Mm -hmm. Wow. And and I'll give you a really good example of that. So in 2016, um, I was asked by students at Williams College to, and literally they called me the same day, I got a flight to Massachusetts, drove my car through a snowstorm in the night to get to Williams College to be present to do a debate with Charles R. Murray. Mm-hmm. Because one club had brought Murray in to talk about intelligence. And the students were like, well, we can't just hear one side of this. So I get there. And first, I find out that the debate's been called off, but that I would have the opportunity to ask Murray questions 
And in the exchange, all the stuff I'm talking to you about now, I make clear to him and his supporters. And, you know, his, you know, suppose I, he had some, I guess, quantitative genetics experts with him. And none of them could say that what I was saying was wrong. Mm -hmm. They could only rely on, well, we haven't found the genes yet. And within five years, we're sure we'll find them. That was in 2016, where it's now 2023. Okay. If they had found these genes, don't you think they would have made the cover of nature or science? Mm -hmm. Still haven't found them yet. No. And, and what I argue is that they're never going to find them because this is a fool's errand. Mm -hmm. Or the reasons that we started talking about at the beginning of this program. Okay, the, the, the geno genomic contributions of intelligence are so complex that to come up with, you know, directional selection for greater intelligence in one group of people, right? You have to show why. No one's been able to show why. There's no reason why, you know, having the ability to solve problems only benefited one group of people on the planet or a couple of groups of people on the planet, but didn't benefit anybody else. That is the most stupid argument that I've ever heard and I've heard a lot of stupid arguments, guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this just even at the top of the list of completely stupid arguments. And just even thinking about it from the field of psychology, which is my field. So we have something here called the adverse childhood experiences studies, the A studies yeah. for short. Uh, and then so they kind of point to the fact that difficult environments essentially, so trauma breeds trauma fundamentally. So where difficult environments kind of, let's say we're talking about different mood disorders, uh, sort of different inabilities to, let's say, function socially, it's sort of psychometrics, right? So when we're thinking about A studies, I would wonder how does somebody kind of disentangle that and say, again, you going back to the gene argument and say, well, here are these genes that now we're looking at obviously educational attainment here are these genes that contribute or are the only things that or the main things that matter to educational attainment when on the other hand in this other discipline and this is now going to go into the importance of interdisciplinary approaches but in this other discipline again going back into psychology you have something called the a studies which have significant correlations between adverse childhood experiences again negative environments abusive environments neglect uh sort of a poverty inability to uh, let's say kind of take care of one's children uh feeling like there's a precariousness in your environment, in your ability to care for yourself, in your ability to care for your children. Uh, there's maybe a lack of food. There's kind of a uh, sort of, um, what would you call it? Uh, the fear that there might not be the, the meal tomorrow or God knows how many meals tomorrow. So right, we know that there are these high correlations between these effects and the experiences, one of which would be educational attainment. So how? Do, so yeah, Joseph, now I want to focus on the importance of an interdisciplinary approach and why these kind of environments matter and also how psycho psychology can kind of benefit if they can right from gene studies but then vice versa also how gene studies can benefit from psychology yeah, from their collaboration yeah well again um everything you just said says to me that most of the variation that we see in um educational attainment particularly in 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 racially structured societies like the united states um has to do with these environmental factors social right. and physical so I'm not sure that genomic studies help in any way. In other words, you, you know, you can spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars sequencing human genomes. Yep. And that's not going to get you towards a solution of the things you just mentioned. And, I, and I, I've said this for a long time. You know, I do genomics right now. I'm a director of a new National Science Foundation Precision Microbiome Engineering um, engineering Research Center of Excellence. 
So I understand how this work works. I do, I do it myself. And doing that kind of study doesn't get us closer to understanding how we can improve kids' educational attainment. The right. things you mentioned get us closer to that. But the problem is this ideological um, buttress of racial supremacy, which starts with, you people are genetically different from us, and that's why you haven't succeeded in American society. It is not that American society is structurally and foundationally racist and classist and sexist and all the other isms you wish to throw into the sentence. It's simply your fault. It's called blame the victim ideology. And if we were truly invested in human potential, we would work towards a society where we give every kid an equal opportunity to get an education. But the problem with that, of course, if you think through the nature of our hierarchical capitalist society, is that if you were giving every kid the educational opportunity to succeed, there wouldn't be enough jobs for all these educated people. Mm -hmm, right. And that's a real problem. A society that is now, by the way, moving in the direction of even fewer jobs, because now we have production that can be done by robots. Uh, and if sat, chat CPG doesn't bother you <laughs> with regard to even my job, okay, in terms of like teaching university classes, I'm sure chat CPG could do a better job than most professors can now of providing the information for a student to be able to learn a sub a discipline mm -hmm. at the university level. Okay. So we're heading in the direction of removing meaningful employment at even greater scales. So how can you then have an educational system that provides kids with great opportunities to learn? What are these educated kids going to do? in this economy. They're, they're not gonna flip burgers at Burger King. Mm -hmm. So that's one of these problems that accounts for why this ideology of blaming the victim has always had such great utility. Right. Because it prevents people from questioning the very socioeconomic foundation of this country. Yeah. And is oh, it, apologies. Yeah, sorry. No, I, I, by the way, I, in general, I, I love the idea of meritocracy, right? Like, oh, you, you by your own merit, you're able to uplift yourself and uh, learn so many different skills. And if you really try, you can, you can make it. And I, I like that idea. But at the same time, some of the things that we've even discussed earlier uh, in the podcast, like just, just where you were born, like what zip code you live in can actually determine your chances of success. Right. And it's, it's nuts to me that like people will, uh, you know, blame the victim. And then at the same time also be like, oh, you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, it's, it's even though you can't, that's actually contradictory yeah, because right. if you're an intellectually inferior, now you can't. 
Right. So yeah, the the thing is, uh, like, yeah, we definitely need to change some things up, yeah. right? We we definitely need to uh, really rework the system. Yeah. Right? And then just for the purpose of time, right? I kind of want to move on a little bit, but not fully. So Joseph, you mentioned in your book, imposter syndrome, and I, I really appreciated some of the more personal details of the book, especially obviously in this case about your life um, and about your relationship with your brother and some of your upbringing and especially your experiences and getting through school, your struggles with school. So now that we're talking about the context of the environment. And obviously, in terms of what happened to you and your life circumstances, and obviously, even some of the outcomes that happened. So you would think that let's say if you met you in high school, somebody would say, well, you know, Joseph, just he doesn't have what it takes to get through school, he can't be successful, you know, we would just kind of throw our hands up and say, I guess it is what it is. But you've kind of bucked that trend, right? Or at least bucked the potential perspective or perception. So can you talk a little bit about what you thought uh, kind of triggered or fueled your imposter syndrome, and some of the elements that helped you? overcome that and obviously become the individual that you are today. Okay, so let me first make it clear to your audience that by the time I was in high school, anybody who who knew anything about students knew that I was really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I already, when I took my PSAT scores in free, uh, I, I scored really high. I was being recruited by all the top institutions in the country. So my biology teachers particularly thought that I was really probably the best biology student in the school. They, they both wrote really strong letters for me um, to go to college. I went to one of America's premier liberal arts colleges, Oberlin College. So mm-hmm. by the time I was in high school, anybody who knew, knew that this kid had a great future. Now, I had teachers on the other hand, besides the ones that I just told you about, who, because of the color of my skin, couldn't see any potential in me. So, and so that's one of the things that, that d- makes you develop this imposter syndrome because objectively, okay, I should have known that I had the ability to succeed, you know, in any career that I chose, but, but I didn't know that because you'd always hear people saying to you, well, you know, why I literally had one homeroom teacher in the middle of the entire class. When I got a letter recruiting me from MIT, hmm. walk to my desk, take the letter, slam it down on my desk and say, I don't know why MIT would be interested in you. Wow, wow. In front of all the other kids. She didn't do that to anybody else in in the class. Mm -hmm. She only did that to me. And yeah, she was my math teacher and her courses were really hard. I wasn't the only one that struggled in that woman's classes. Mm -hmm. She only found it necessary to call me out as unworthy in front of all the other kids in the class. And, and, and you have, a, and at that time, and, and still to this day, people who are not in the socially dominant group in this country still undergo those kinds of insults. You know, uh, that would have been called a macroaggression. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we have all these microaggressions that, that are even, you know, done without words. But even to this day, if, if I walk into an upscale restaurant, I will get looks like I'm not supposed to be there. Um, and you, when you've had these looks all your life, you know what's behind the look. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is how one develops imposter syndrome, not just from the overt naked racist aggression, because you get enough of that. But you also get all this subtle stuff that's mm. directed towards you, even non-verbally. 
that makes you think you don't belong. So yeah, that's that's how I had an imposter syndrome. And when I went to college, I went to college with kids from the wealthiest portions of American society. Uh, I, I went to kid school with kids whose parents were Hollywood actors and or millionaires. Um, and I struggled as an undergraduate because I was from a poor working class family. Mm-hmm. You know, my mother and father could barely read a newspaper. Um, these kids went to Europe on their parents' yachts in the summertime while I was working in a plastics factory, you know, choking on fumes in the, you know, 95 degree heat of central New Jersey. Completely different experiences. Okay. Guys, I need to take this real quick. Sure, sure. Okay. All right. So go back. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. that's how you get imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, even as a as a child, right? If I'm not mistaken, in your book, uh, there's a section where just one time you were just uh, maybe uh, you wanted to fly in class, something like mm-hmm. that, right? And the teacher deemed that as like a like obstructive behavior, uh, maybe told the principal, if I'm not mistaken, and they wanted to put you in a special education class. And it was thanks to your mother that you actually weren't put into one, but that could have totally changed your, your life's trajectory. And that happened to have happened to one of your friends. Uh, and then they became dejected and um, um, became less interested in school as a, as a symptom of that. So to, so to tell you, you know, what my life's trajectory was like, I am the only African-American male in my kindergarten class that is still alive. Wow. And that didn't go to prison. Mm-hmm. All the rest are dead or went to prison. And there were so many times you know, growing up when if coin had flipped another way, I wouldn't have survived to go to college. Mm-hmm. And that that's the society that African-American males African-Americans in general grow up in. I mean, the, I was born in the same year that Emmett Till was lynched in Money, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. My parents taught us uh, a, a behaviors of deference to persons of European descent, particularly to police, because they knew, because they grew up in a world in which people disappeared all the time and were never seen again. So one of the things that my parents really did a good job was preparing me to survive in an environment where there were plenty of people who simply because of the color of my skin would have jumped at the opportunity to do me harm. And not to mention the fact that in communities that are socially subordinated, people turn on themselves. And this is what you know Du Bois talked about in The Souls of Black Folks, about the internalization of racism. Mm-hmm. So there were people, you know, again, it wasn't as bad when I was a kid, but, you know, you know, black on black violence was a real thing. I mean, literally on the summer before I was about to go off to college, um, I had been involved in a scrape with this kid at the schoolyard um, and he pulled up in a car. Okay. And was challenging me to, to fight as I was walking along the street. I didn't know what he had in that car. Mm-hmm. If I had jumped at that opportunity, I mean, I, I could have easily been dead. So my life was and is an absolute miracle. Yeah, wow. Okay? And that's understanding the nature of structural racism 
I'm sure there were plenty of other African-American males who were just as bright and talented as I was, but they didn't make it. Right. That's, that's how structural wages work. It, 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 it determines the probability of your success so that someone like me was extremely rare. Right. Yeah. And so just, Alan, do you have any more questions about the issue of race and IQ or do you want to, are you okay with moving on? Well, um, so there's, there's a chapter in your book, um, the book that everyone should read, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And, yeah. And it, mm-hmm. yeah, there was, um, um, so by the way, with respect, if we don't, we don't have to talk about this, but, um, what, you know, what happened with your, uh, brother, right. Um, uh, when I was reading that, I don't know, uh, it, it kind of, it kind of hit me, you know, having encephalitis, um, what happened with his, with his wife, uh, and then, uh, some of the feelings that you describe having around, um, around that time, I don't know. I have, I've had somebody in my family, uh, pass away too. And like these inklings that you have, like when somebody's kind of near death's door and like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's very rough on you, but it can also, um, impact you, change your thinking or inspire you to work harder, um, in, in, you know, in your field and stuff. I don't know, but uh, how, how did, how did it sort of, um, impact you? Yeah. So, yeah. So you, you, you've read the book, so you know, that I, you know, I took a turn for the worst. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I undoubtedly had clinical depression, uh, but again, I didn't get help. So I was doing self-destructive behaviors and, you know, my life was, I mean, it may spinning out of control. So the way that I recovered was getting to work on the emperor's new clothes, Mm -hmm. which is, by the way, that book is still my most widely cited publication. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I knew from from my experiences with the whole bell curve nonsense that there was a need for a book to explain how this misconception of race and racial thinking had developed in Western society. And so I went to work on that. And of course, at the time, you know, I was still a, a, a young father, so I had, I had two kids um, and I had a big research lab that I was running during the day and I had to teach classes. And, you know, when I used to get home from work, my wife would go, here, these are your kids. Take your kids. Mm-hmm. She had enough, right? Mm-hmm. And so I didn't write The Emperor until it was like 11 o'clock at night. And I would stay up and I would write from 11 to like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and get, you know, a couple of hours of sleep before I had to go back to the university and, and do my regular job. Right. So, But it was an important work. Um you know, I, I, I think it's not the best book that I've written. Um, you know, I, I think voice and racism, not race, the, the two that came out in 2022 are probably mm-hmm. the best books I've written. But in many ways, it was the most important book that I wrote, because that was the one that really, I think, um, changed my trajectory from just sort of being a pretty good evolutionary geneticist to becoming a public intellectual. Right. Yeah. And so again, just in the interest of time, I want to move on. So I really want to focus on the gender issue, which Joseph, you've covered masterfully in your book. So first I want to quote from your book and then we'll talk about it. So Joseph wrote, all the prohibitions against gay and transgender behavior fall to pieces if the idea of a simple gender bifurcation into into female and male is simply not true. As he was writing on the origin of species, Darwin was particularly impressed by the sexual characteristics and behavior of barnacles. The more he learned about them, the more he was convinced that his species theory was correct. 
He was astounded to find many species in which the males had become completely dependent upon the females and were only found attached to the female body. In these species, the entire male anatomy was reduced to simply being a giant penis. If this phenomenon were limited to barnacles, then the observation would not be particularly important. However, there are many species in which parasitic males are the norm. We have already established that hermaphroditic species are extremely common in nature, that separate sexes evolve under specific conditions, and that individuals can change their sex under specific conditions. Given that humans evolved from animal lineages with these features, why would anyone be surprised that human gender sex determination is both complex and fluid. I love that. So Joseph, can we speak a little bit about that? Because obviously in the kind of pop culture or sort of the norms, especially maybe in more Southern states are that God created man and God created woman. They have these specific roles and functions. And that's the natural, that's the term often used. That's the natural way of being. But what we're seeing in biology is that's actually not really the norm. You have gender different. Well, let's distinguish the gender and sex difference first, the difference between the concepts. And then also do we have differences in sex and the way that uh, kind of animals, species, uh, bacteria, is how they function in terms of sexual reproduction, asexual reproductions in terms of different types of organs. And then obviously, and he, I know this is a lot, and then obviously in humans, we have different, right, different types of sexual orientations. So before I answer your question, I, I want to make it clear to, to your listeners that in fact, I'm a confirmed Episcopalian. Mm -hmm. I go to church on a regular basis. So my analysis of you know the biology of sex and gender is not something that was designed to attack the church because often people see um, analyses that examine the difference between the reality of sex and gender in the biological world and the mythology that the church holds, many churches hold as right. being an attack on religion, which, which this is not. Um, one could see it as an attack on fundamentalism because yeah, I do attack religious fundamentalism all the time. Right. But at the end of the day, there is what is in nature. And you amply describe that in the passage from the book is that, you know, what we understand as gender is fluid. And we evolved from species that had fluid gender identities. And to think that that suddenly got lost when we became homo sapiens sapiens is, again, it's as nonsensical as the winter selection theory. But again, it plays a very powerful ideological role in the oppression of people who don't fit the, bin the gender binary. Right. And, and, you know, it's often been said that you can judge the civilization of a society by the people that it treats the most uh, or the worst. And so if you look at our society, the people who are by far treated the worst are gays and transgender people, which shows you we haven't really achieved the civilization that we say, or the United States likes to think it has. Because the idea that you, you know, will um, oppress people, that you will deny their sexual identity because you find it threatening, and that you will make laws against them, to me, is the absolute epitome of injustice. Mm -hmm. While most of the former Confederate states, gay, gay people are not afforded the same civil rights protections as everybody else. So in my state, North Carolina, gay people cannot marry. Mm -hmm. Now, as a credit to, to my church, the Episcopal Church, we recognize gay unions 
Many of our clergy are gay. But a lot of other Christian denominations, you know, even the best ones will say, you know, we, we, we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. Mm -hmm. right. But, you know, what they base their hatred on is even then a misinterpretation of scripture with regard to human sexual behavior. Mm -hmm. So when, when Paul was writing about this, he was mainly writing about pagan practice and um, about the fact that people should be focusing on, not on sex, but on preparing for the coming of Christ. So it wasn't a blanket condemnation of sexuality or gay sexuality. So they, so they base this on, on basically what is simply bigotry and prejudice, mm -hmm. not any sort of scholarly examination of the scriptures they say they believe in, and certainly not any um, uh, the word, uh, scholarly examination of how organisms actually behave in the biological world. Because mm -hmm. if they did that, they would know that being uh, attracted to the same sex is not something that is rare. It's actually very common. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and same thing with reproduction. So it's interesting that there's so much asexual reproduction as opposed to sexual. So can we talk a little bit about the evolutionary foundations of sexual reproduction? I think people will find that super fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, it sort of makes, again, this basic mathematical sense that if you are reproducing without males, you produce more reproductive units. Mm -hmm. Males can't themselves reproduce. They require females. So the question becomes, well, then how do males ever evolve? Um, if you look at the way bacteria, the first living things on this planet, reproduce, you really should consider them as all being female. They reproduce by binary fission. Every one of those cells can reproduce, which is, by the way, the definition of being female. So at some point, you have the separation of reproductive and non-reproductive individuals. So there has to be a great fitness benefit for that to occur. And so it is thought that things like novel environments, which allow uh, or, or where genetic recombination is beneficial with regard to being able to deal with novel environments. Also parasitism, again, having greater genetic um, diversity through recombination helps to deal with things like parasitism. But this whole question of, both the evolution of sex and the maintenance of sex is an active area of research in evolutionary biology. It's, it's not as simple as in the beginning, there was male and female. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, nature doesn't work that way. Right. And your understanding essentially is that it was actually in the beginning female, if we could kind of classify it as that. Right. And then the men were sort of in some ways additions later on. Yes, that, that's pretty accurate description of what I think. Yeah. So how would you sort of respond to somebody, again, maybe this is not so much of just a religious argument, but to somebody who says, well, you know, that might have been the case in some species or in some animal uh, kind of clusters, right? But we're humans, right? So we're different. And we know that men are born men and females are born females. So why shouldn't there be a gender binary? Well, first off, they're wrong because <laughs> all embryos are born as females. And and, it, and then in the, in the human system, the Y chromosome encodes uh, gene called testes determining factor, which gets expressed later on in development and, and takes a female embryo and makes it male. So the idea again, that, you know, there's just male and female in humans is, is again, wrong. We, we didn't just suddenly jump out of our evolutionary lineage. Um, we are again, descent with modification. 
and the notion that humans were always gender binaries is not at all supported by written history. Okay, gay people, transgender people have always existed. They're written about in every culture on this planet. And if and, and at the dawn of you know written um, records, these people were all in every culture of the world, then they certainly were there before written records. So again, this notion that there were just males and females is not supported by history. It's not supported by our biology. So people who hold that position pretty much are arguing on the basis of bias um, and superstition. Right, which is so interesting because, I mean, that's technically what we tend to charge people uh, on the other end of the spectrum, the fundamentalists as being sort of, uh, or I'd rather that they, they kind of charge us rather, I'm sorry, the other way around, they charge us with being sort of biased. So there's this kind of anti-intellectualism now and an anti-scientific movement where the idea is that it's not them so much that are the fundamentalists, it's us, that we are sort of with the new religion or the progressives have a new religion. So how would you kind of, uh, I guess, sort of how would you tackle that charge to say that there's a scientism or a wokeness in the university that shouldn't necessarily be there oh well first thing you need to know is um literally i'm writing an essay on monday for mm -hmm. a publication opinion piece um called frogs in the orwellian beaker mm -hmm. and if you remember the famous um frogs in the beaker experiment if you if you if you have a beaker of boiling water and you try to place a frog in it the frog is going to jump out because it's mm -hmm sense that this is boiling water but if you put a frog in a beaker and you gradually increase the temperature the frog will stay there until it boils to death because it won't be able to sense that the temperature is gradually being increased but that's the the ideological plan of the right wing in the united states those who want to maintain the status quo of white supremacy, of sexism, of anti-LGBTQ um, society. What they are doing is they're turning up the temperature um, and introducing you know, these false claims and false facts in an attempt to make folks believe that you know, this is the way society should be, this is the way it's always been. So like when DeSantos he tries to eliminate an African-American studies class in the state of Florida, AP class, um, you know, and then the educational testing service comes back and says, well, okay, we're going to redo the class, but we're going to take out people like Angela Davis. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you teach African-American history without people like Angela Davis? So this is the problem. In other words, folks who want to maintain and support these systems of injustice are attacking those who want to make change by claiming that they're the ones who are oppressing people. So the silliness of saying, you know, because uh, slavery was enacted in the United States and it was a cruel institution, you know, and people died and people were raped, okay, and people, families were separated, that teaching that history makes persons of European descent somehow uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, these were terrible things and, and we need to know these things and we should be uncomfortable with terrible things. Just like if you teach the history of World War II and you teach the fact that the Nazis came up with their own race theory 
and that they rounded up people and put them in concentration camps and murdered, you know, 20 million people over the course of the war, that we should be uncomfortable learning those things. Yeah. But that's the truth. And we can't move in the direction of justice if we don't know the truth. Right. So, yeah, maybe these courses can be taught more effectively. I mean, you know, just like in, in any discipline, there are people who are pretty good at their pedagogy and then there are people who need work. But you, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. There is historical fact and kids need to know it. Yeah. How you teach it, however, is, is another question. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great point to end it off on. All right. So Alan, any final questions for Joseph before we wrap up? Yes. So uh, I wanted to ask, um, so what, what advice would you give to young scientists who are just sort of starting out in their careers and they're looking to make a positive impact uh, on the world through their work? Well, I, I put that advice uh, in a book chapter I wrote about 10 years ago. It's mm -hmm. called Science in the Belly of the Beast. And, and it's written for young, aspiring scientists. And, and I asked them to ask themselves a series of questions. And the first question is, you know, what do you want to do with your life? Um, the second question is, you know, if you're going to work inside of an organization, you know, are your goals the same as that organization's goals? Um, and then, then the third question I ask is, you know, how do you or can you think of a way um, so that you can, you know, meld your goals with the goals of the institution you're working in. And that those are questions everyone has to ask themselves without regard to discipline, without regard to career. It's not mm -hmm. something just that scientists need to do. And so those were the things I struggled with in my early career. And, and in the essay, I give them tips and strategies so that they can progress in their scientific career without, you know, having to go through the, the the trials and tribulations that I went through. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, was, I was in Toronto the other night um, at the Wycliffe um, School of Theology and students were asking me those very questions. And so my response was you should one, do your work, finish your degree. Mm -hmm. Because you know we need good people in science, but you also need to think about the difference between the scientific method, which is how we learn about nature and the scientific enterprise which is right. what we do with the facts that we learn about nature. Mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. We as scientists have an ethical and moral obligation to do with our science things that make the world a more humane and just place. And so that's a choice that everyone um, needs to face. And that's the advice I give to young scientists. I love that. And such a great point to end it off on. Uh, oh my God. And I just got to say, man, we had, we could have talked about so many more things. This book has literally five more questions. Yeah, but... We could have just, oh my God, so many different directions. So Joseph, if we wanted to find you, we wanted to follow your work by the book, where can we do that? Um, the book is available on all major book selling platforms. So, you know, Amazon, Target, um, Barnes and Noble. Uh, and so, yeah, hopefully people buy the book and read it. Um, and you're right. Uh, we only scratched the surface of the topics in that book. And if you guys ever want to interview me again on another topic, I'd be happy to do that. Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. Cool. Wait, so thank you so much for coming on, Joseph. This thank was you. excellent. All right. So enjoy the rest of your day, guys. All right. You, you too, too, man. Talk Take to care. you soon. All right. Peace. Bye. All right.
All right. That was awesome. So uh, everyone, if you want to follow us, you could follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. We're on uh, we're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.